This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, And any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast. Today, 
is Tuesday. It is the 7th of November. Hope you're all well. Weather update, overcast, but not too bad. Uh, we had one game in the Premier League last night, and it might have been the wildest game of the season. Dejan Kulosevsky put Spurs 1-0 up on six minutes before over insanity engulfed Tottenham Hotspur. First and foremost, Destiny Adoji should have been sent off for that two-footed lunge on Raheem Sterling. And is very, very fortunate that Raheem Sterling is an honest player. But that should have been a straight red. There's no excuse for it not to be. He's wild, out of control, leaping in with two feet. Uh, two feet. He could have broken Sterling's leg. Then Christian Romero should have been sent off for kicking out at Levi Colwell while lying on the floor. And it's funny because I'm watching the Beckham documentary at the moment. And... It's the same type of petulant kick-out, but it's more obvious than the Beckham one. It should have been a red card. You can't raise your hand or your foot to your opponent at all. You just can't. That should have been a straight red as well. Romero was then sent off on 33 minutes, but not before Chelsea had two goals disallowed. Uh, The first by Raheem Sterling after an accidental handball by Sterling in the build-up and the second by Moises Caicedo. Having had the kick-out incident, Romero's head seemingly had gone. He plays a poor ball into a central area. Chelsea pick it up, drive into the box. Again, Spurs have an opportunity to clear it. Don't manage that. It falls to Enzo Fernandez. Romero gets the ball, but it's very similar to the Curtis Jones red card. And he goes over the top and into the shin of Enzo Fernandez. It's a red card and off he goes and up steps Cole Palmer and he scores the penalty. The ironic side of it, I suppose, is that the, the Caicedo goal was ruled out for offside. Had it been given... Romero stays on the pitch. So when Chelsea, when Spurs fans celebrated the goal being ruled out, it actually turned out much worse for them. Um, even with 10 men, Spurs still posed a threat. The issue is, and I said this was going to be the issue for them, if Romero misses time, Eric Dyer is the one they have to bring in, and he's dreadful. And he was dreadful last night. Spurs continue to play that high line balancing the fact that it's probably easier for them to just try and catch Chelsea offside, which they did routinely last night. Chelsea couldn't time their runs. They were caught offside seven times. But it's a gamble, and all it takes is for it to work once. And if playing a high line with 10 was seen as suicidal by some, as opposed to just you know parking the bus and trying to absorb pressure... Uh, Destiny Adoji decided to get himself sent off on 55 minutes. Having been booked for the earlier ridiculous challenge on Sterling, he makes another ridiculous challenge on Sterling, and he knows straight away that that's him off. He knows immediately that's him done. So off he goes, and now Spurs are down to nine men. And again, Spurs keep playing the high line. But even with nine men, 
they managed to keep Chelsea at bay until the 75th minute. Finally, the offside trap is broken and it's Eric Dyer just being dog slow, not able to get back. It's a very simple finish for Nicholas Jackson after the ball has rolled into his path. On 94 minutes, the same goal happens again. It's a very simple ball played down the right. They Spurs off sideline doesn't work. The ball is rolled across and Jackson taps home. And then on 97 minutes, he wraps up a hat-trick. Again, the Spurs are still playing the high line. It's a simple ball played through. He runs onto it, beats the goalkeeper and finishes well. Um, Two things here. Vicario concedes four goals, but played really, really well. Nicholas Jackson scores three goals and was absolutely dreadful. Was genuinely dreadful in this game. This is the Erling Haaland type of hat-trick where you play really poorly and still come away with three goals. 4-1 flatters Chelsea hugely here. They deserve to win the game. But Spurs shot themselves in the foot over and over and over again. Like, there's no complaints that can be made by Spurs on the two red cards because both of those players should have had red cards earlier. Adoiji has no complaints to make at all. Romero can claim he was unlucky, but it's the same challenge Curtis Jones was sent off for on that ground where you win the ball, but you go over the top. And he had more force in his than Jones had in his. A lot of people after the game then trying to mock Ange Postacoglu because when Liverpool had the controversial decisions go against them at this stadium, Postacoglu came out and backed the referees. Well, you know what he did last night when the decisions went against his team? He came out and he backed the referees. He showed consistency. He spoke about needing to empower referees, not diminish them. And it was really refreshing, to be quite honest. He had a little shot at some of his fellow managers in the league. I'd imagine the other fella in North London being one of them after his temper tantrum at the weekend. Which, by the way, it's funny that Arteta had all that to say about the referees, but didn't have anything to say about the fact that they should have sent off Kai Havertz and didn't. And that, that's all, isn't it? Kai Havertz should have gotten a straight red card for his horrendous tackle. But he got away with it. But Arteta had nothing to say about that. Loads to say about the goal that they conceded. And I, I, I do agree with him in terms of the foul by Jolington. But he had nothing to say about the Havertz thing. Whereas Postacoglu was just very honest, very open. He wasn't going to complain. He never does. It was refreshing to hear. It really was refreshing to hear. So, Chelsea win 4-1. It's by far their, their best win of the season. It moves them into the top half now. They are now 10th. Level on points with Crystal Palace, but with a better goal difference. Uh, for Spurs, they say, stay second. But it's the first defeat of the season for them. And it'll be interesting to see how they respond. Up next for, Chelsea, for for Spurs, rather, they've got Wolves away 
Villa home, City away, West Ham home, Newcastle home. So this was always going to be a tough run, but last night makes it a lot tougher, and we'll get into the reasons why in a bit. Uh, On to Chelsea then. Their next five games, they are home to Manchester City, away to Newcastle, home to Brighton, away to Manchester United, and then away to Everton. So a tough five-game run for them as well. They needed these three points because if they had lost last night, you wouldn't fancy them to get anything against City. I wouldn't fancy them to get anything up at St. James's. I think Brighton can beat them. Old Trafford, I mean, United have been so poor this season that maybe they go there and they win, but maybe not. And then Goodison's always a weird place to go. And Everton might have their tails up and might be galvanised with this threat of 12 points been taken off them. So they needed that win last night. They got the win. It flatters them a bit, the scoreline, but they did play well and they did deserve the win. Um... Before we go to winners and losers, we're going to do Garth Crooks' team of the week. Uh, he picked Sam Johnston in goal. That's fair. He had a lot of work to do in that Burnley game, and he did it well. He's got Niakata, Van Dyke, and Maguire in defence. Now, Harry Maguire didn't have a particularly good game. I think he got a concussion early in the game. And he looked a bit dopey from there on. He looks a bit dopey all the time, but he he looked a bit dopey from there. And it was just moments where he was a little bit slow to react. And most of the good chances that Fulham had in that game were as a result of Maguire doing something silly. So Maguire shouldn't be there. Van Dijk and Niakata, absolutely. Uh, In midfield, he's gone with Jolington, Fernandez, Bernardo and Jeremy Doku. I don't think you could disagree with any of them. I thought Jolington played really well against Arsenal. Bruno got the winner, which is why he's in. Uh, Silva and Doku, absolutely. They were they were incredible. In attack, he's gone Cameron Archer, Nicholas Jackson, because he scored a hat-trick. He was utterly awful, but he scored a hat-trick. And Anthony Gordon, because he scored a tap-in, but I didn't think he played all that well. Um, so I think Gareth has once again just looked at the score lines and thought, okay, he scored, he scored, and he got a hat-trick, so let's go with that. Um, he's just a very strange man. I don't know how the BBC continue to employ him. Right, winners and losers. <clears throat> First winner is going to be City, because they're now top of the league. And all three of their rivals for the title, if you can call them that, Drop points. Spurs lost, Arsenal lost, and Liverpool drew. Aston Villa also lost. So City, the only one of the top five who won, they were outstanding. They looked really, really dynamic. It was the first time this season that City have really gone through the gears, and Doku was just phenomenal. And if he's going to perform like that on even a semi-regular basis, that's going to be scary. Uh, Next winner has got to be Newcastle because the four teams directly above them in the league now lost. They were able to close ground, and they won against one of the top teams in Arsenal. Now, you can say it was controversial with the goal, and that's fair. 
but they matched Arsenal. There was no smash and grab about this. Newcastle were very clever with how they let Arsenal have the ball and where they let Arsenal have the ball. And I think Newcastle have to go down as one of the big winners. And my last one is going to be Chelsea because, like I said, they just needed that result. They needed that win. Because if not, I think Pochettino was going to come under real pressure if they were to lose, say, two of the next five or three of the next five, I think we could have seen Poch under real pressure here. He's a good manager. He's going to need time. That club is a mess, top to bottom. They've bought far too many players. There's no method to what they bought. There's no plan for what they bought. That's a bunch of different people picking players and just running them up. We're also going to do a special winner for Sheffield United because they won their first Premier League game of the season. And that's massive. To win your first Premier League game of the season is as, as a newly promoted team is, is going to be a big thing. The fact that it's taken them to their 11th game to do it is a concern. But it means that they're not cut adrift. They win one more and they could climb out of the bottom three. They're only two points behind Luton and Bournemouth. So it was a huge win for them, especially with Luton picking up a point. The fact that Bournemouth and Burnley lost again helps them, but they've just got to stay close to those three. If they can keep within three to five points of those three, it gives them a chance. Maybe they go and strengthen in January, and maybe we see them put together a little run of form. I still think that manager's on the hot seat. I think, to be fair, him, company, and Irola are probably all under a lot of pressure. I think Rob Edwards is probably fairly safe because let's be realistic here about what Luton did in the summer. They bought a team for next season in the championship. And I I would imagine Rob Edwards is under a promise of, look, even if we go down, you're our guy. We'd trust you to get us back up. And when we come back up the second time, we'll be a lot stronger. We'll be financially more secure and we might be in a different stadium. So, I think Heckenbottom remains under pressure. So, again, for him, a win was needed. In terms of losers, then, um, Liverpool, for certain, you can't be dropping points at Luton. You just can't. Not when all your rivals are going to go there and win. Now, it didn't hurt them. Overall, because Spurs lost, because Arsenal lost, and because Villa lost. But at the same time, it was an opportunity to go ahead of Spurs, and they'd only be one point behind City had they won that game. So they're one. Second one is going to be Wolves for losing to a team that hadn't won a game. Wolves had had some pretty good performances of late, were on a decent run of form. And just didn't show up at all. Just really, really poor. The loss of Neto was massive, obviously. But they didn't adapt to it at all. It was almost like they were still turning around and looking for him to make something to happen. So, yeah, Wolves. But the biggest loser of the weekend is Spurs. Even though they sit, they sit second and it's only their first defeat of the season, it's not even the scoreline. It's not even the fact that they lost the game. The reason it's them is because of the knock-on effect into the next 
three, six, ten games, Romero is going to be suspended for the next three games. Adoji is going to be suspended for the next game. James Madison went off injured and Mickey Van de Ven went off injured. Now they're fairly light defensively in that central area anyway. Now you take out both starting centre-backs. I'm really not sure what they're going to do. They could play Eric Dyer, but he's garbage. They could play Davies. So is it Dyer and, and Davies? We've seen that pairing before. It doesn't work. Emerson Royale is going to be needed to fit in as the... He came on at centre-back last night. He's going to have to play left-back because Sessegnon is out. I suppose he could play centre-back and Davies could play left-back, but that's assuming Ben Davies is is back. Sessegnon is out. Perisic can play left-back. He's also out. Ben Davies, they're hopeful he'll be back for next weekend. But that's tough. Like, to just come back in immediately. You're in the team, son. Best of luck. Madison, it's a knock on the ankle. So, we'll see what happens. I I think if it hadn't been for the fact that Van de Ven had to go off, I don't think Madison would have been taken off. Because Andrew's trying to use those substitution windows. I think he probably might have been able to run it off if he'd stayed on. But maybe he misses a game or two. James Madison has a history of injuries and Spurs will want to be careful with him. Especially considering he's playing so well. But to lose both starting centre-backs when you have no quality depth in that position, that's massive. And Romero will be three games... But who knows with Van de Ven? Hamstring strain at, at his size, given how reliant he is on his pace and how reliant they are on his pace, that is huge. He could be out for a month, two months. That's a lot of Eric Dyer. It's an awful lot of Eric Dyer, and he is dreadful. So that's where Spurs have to be the biggest loser of, of this weekend. Uh, from there, we'll take a break. When we come back, it's left side centre back day on our power rankings. So I'll see you after this. Right. Welcome back. So it is left side centre back day and we have our lists. So it's 10 best in the Premier League, 10 best in the world, 10 best ever, and my five favourites. So we'll go Premier League first. For me, Van Dijk is still the best. He's still the best in the world. Either side. But he is the best left-side centre-back in the world. He had a poor season last year. There's no question. But if you go back to the 16-17 season at Southampton, he was tremendous. He is injured the first half of 17-18. Of joins Liverpool then. He was the best centre-back in the league at Southampton. Then he had that little spell where he was injured and his form was up and down. Then he joins Liverpool for £75 People scoff, and now no one mentions the price anymore, which will tell you how good he's been. His run from 18 to 20, 2018 to 2020, that is, is the best centre-back I've ever seen. 
I think he's the best centre back anyone's ever seen in those two years. Then his knee gets torn apart by Jordan Pickford and his tiny arms. He comes back, and in 21-22, he was the best centre-back in the world again, off the back of an ACL tear. But he played a little bit too much. Last season, with full-backs that were underperforming, with centre-back partners that were underperforming, with no midfield to protect in front, he had a really poor season by his standards. But if you go and watch those games, he's not the disaster that some people made him out to be. This idea that he was washed was weird. There's no way that the likes of Saliba and Martinez and Gabriel were any better than him. The teams were performing better. And too often we get caught up in this perception of, well, the team is playing well, so the players are playing well, all the players are playing well, or the team is playing badly, so all the players are playing badly. That's just not how it works. You can have a team that plays very well, and one player can be playing really poorly, but the team is that good around them that it mitigates how poor this fella is, or vice versa. You can have some guy performing brilliantly in a bad team, but the team around him is so bad that it just cancels out what he's doing in the positive. So he's absolutely number one. At number two is Ruben Diaz of Manchester City, who is, he's an outstanding centre-back. Like, there's no point in pretending otherwise. He is an outstanding centre-back. He's a little bit old-fashioned in how he plays, but he's also a modern centre-back in that he's good on the ball, he's switchable, he's versatile. He's a very, very good player. The only thing he doesn't have is elite-level pace, but everything else about his game, like he's not a great passer, but he understands his limitations and plays to them. So that's always a positive sign. He has the intelligence to realize, well, I can't do that, but I can do this and this, and I can do these really well. So this is what I'm going to do. And number three, we're going to go with Sven Botman. For my money, the best centre-back in the league last season, I thought he was outstanding, made a huge, huge difference to Newcastle, was wrongly left out of the team of the year. Uh, Newcastle players just routinely overlooked in the team of the year last year. Somehow Trippier made it. And he didn't. It was bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. Because he was easily their best defender last season. And I think the best in the league. He made the type of impact on them. Not quite that Van Dijk made on Liverpool, but pretty close. His impact on the tune was bigger than Diaz's impact on City when he arrived. And Diaz won Football of the Year. And Botman didn't even get consideration. Uh, number four. This one might be early. But I'm going to go Mickey van de Ven. I genuinely think this kid is outstanding. 22, physical monster, brilliant 1v1. Aerially, he's improving. That's the one area he needs to really work on, is that the aerial side. It's a shame for the Dutch that both van de Ven and Botman are left-footed because if one of them was right-footed and you could play them either side of van Dijk in a back three... That's probably the best back three anyone's going to have anywhere in the world by a considerable margin. Maybe Van Dyke shifts to the right side and Botman plays in the middle because he's the one that doesn't have elite pace. And you go Van Dyke, Botman, and Van de Ven as a three. That could be pretty special. Uh, number five, I've gone Neef Agard 
I really like Nath Higgard. I really like how he goes about his business. I don't think the West Ham style suits him all that well. And I'm not sure, like, the partnership with him and Zuma is good, but I don't think he's the ideal partner for Zuma, and I don't think Zuma is the ideal partner for him. I think if you put him in the Arsenal team next to Saliba, that's a pairing that will work a little bit better. Number six, I've got Gabriel, speaking of Saliba's partner. Um, I think Gabriel is hugely underrated. I do. I think he's the better centre-back at Arsenal. Now, I have Saliba higher on my right-side centre-back list than I have Gabriel on my left-side centre-back list. But that's largely down to the fact that the left side is just much stronger in the Premier League. You've got, I think, two that are undeniably world-class in Van Dijk and Diaz. I think Botman and Van de Ven profile as being potentially world-class. Agard is a tier below, but really, really good. And then there's Gabriel, where as on right on the right side, Romero, when he keeps his head on, is world class. Kanate can be when he's fit and in, in form. That's kind of it. After that, it's it's a very weak list. Um but yeah, Gabriel at number six. I think he's look, he does make mistakes. He 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 was fouled on that. He, that's not a mistake that he made for the Newcastle goal. He was fouled. He does make the odd mistake, and a little bit like Romero, his head can go at times, but he is an excellent defender. Uh, number seven, I've gone Mark Wehi of Crystal Palace, who I think is hugely underrated. Um, funnily enough, I've got him seven on this list, and I've got his partner, Anderson, seven on the right side list, and I think Anderson might actually be low on that, but they're a very good pairing. I think Gwehi is malleable. I think he can fit into a two or a three. I think you could comfortably play him on the right side of, of your pairing if you needed to. And I think he'd adapt very well. You can tell by his career that he adapts to situations and different styles of football quite well. So he's consistent. He's been outstanding to begin this season. Mark Gwehi, number seven. Uh, number eight is actually playing the right side of a three at the moment, but he is a left-sided centre-back. as Max Kilman of Wolves I think is very underrated I don't think he's quite good enough to play for the very elite clubs but like he'd be an upgrade for a number of the teams who sit above Wolves in the Premier League uh, including the likes of Manchester United and Brighton I think he could fit really really well into either of those teams and they play very different styles so I think he's one that just fits in well wherever you want him uh, number nine is Pau Torres. Now, he, from a talent perspective, could definitely rise up this list. But last season, he wasn't great. This season, he's taken a little bit of time to settle. But the partnership with him and Konza is now starting to work very well. And Konza was ninth on my right-sided list. He's ninth on my left-sided list. Number 10, I've gone back and forth because on the right side of one, I went Zarbani more as a kind of a futures pick. And I wanted to do the same thing here. And it came down to two players, Murillo at Nottingham Forest and Jared Branthwaite at Everton. And I've gone with Branthwaite because I just think he's been so impressive this season. Like 
that partnership with him and Tarkovsky works really well. And that left-sided partnership with him and Michaelenko works really, really well. If Everton can just nail down Patterson, Tarkovsky, Branthwaite and Michaelenko as a back four and stop with the Ashley Young nonsense, I really do think that back four has big potential. I think Branthwaite long-term is going to be a very, very good defender. Be it as a left-side centre-back in a two or in a three. Because in a three, you'd add, you get more of what he can offer you on the ball. Now, England obviously have uh, a star left-sided centre-back in Levi Colwell. But when I watch Branthwaite play with that extra pace, that extra size, the extra physicality, I do wonder, could could he be the one that actually nails down that spot? There's a reason there was a lot of clubs, including Liverpool, interested in him in the summer. I think he has the potential to play for England for a long, long time and, and amass a lot of caps. He's 6'5", he's quick, he's good on the ball. He's not, not as good on the ball as Colwell, but defensively, he might be better than Levi Colwell. Like, what is he, a year younger than Van de Ven? Now, he doesn't have Van de Ven's pace, but everything else is, is quite similar. Similar size, similar build. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see within 12 months Jared Branthwaite been talked about as one of the best left side centre backs in the league, not just top ten, but you know, pushing for the top five if he continues to develop. And I, I have no doubts that he will. Um doesn't turn twenty-two until June. So that's my top ten. Van Dyke, Diaz, Botman, Van de Ven, Agard, Gabriel, Guehi, Kilman, Torres, and Branthwaite. Globally and by globally, I mean across Europe, because there's nobody from South America getting into this list. Uh, Van Dyke is still number one for me. Now, there is an argument for Kim based on this season, but if we look at body of work, it's going to be Van Dyke. Um, Kim second, he's been brilliant since moving to Bayern. He was incredible for Napoli last season. Best centre-back in Serie A last year. He's well-rounded. He's he can struggle a little bit defending in small spaces against nippy uh, attackers who can change direction quite quickly. But aside from that, he's he's great. Like he is great. Number three, I've gone Diaz. Number four, I've gone Botman. And number five, Milan Skriniar, who's been tremendous since joining PSG, was brilliant for Inter Milan for a lot of years. Obviously, the Inter played right side of a back three, but his preferred position is left side of a two. And the partnership with him and Marquinhos um, is one of the best in the world. So I've got him number five. Number six, I've gone with Alessandro Bastoni. Now, he definitely can rise up this list. He could be the guy who's number one within two years. I'm just, I'm knocking him a little bit because he plays in a three. It's not his fault, not his choice, obviously. It does make it a little bit easier for him. 
He's not an automatic starter for the national team yet, which is not, again, not his fault, not his choice. But I think there's more to come from him where he puts together a really great season, August to May, and leaves no doubt in anybody's mind that this is one of the three or four best defenders in the world. He has all the talent and he's great on the ball as well. Um, Number six, I've gone... Sorry, that's not, he is number six. Number seven, I've gone David Alaba. Now, I will always maintain that he's a left-back because he is. But you look at what he's done at Bayern and at Real, he's really good at centre-back. He reads the game so well. He's so calm, so composed, great on the ball, brilliant 1v1 defender, makes up for a lack of aerial dominance by just reading the game so much better than most people. So he's number seven. Uh, number eight, I've gone Nico Schlotterbeck of Borussia Dortmund. Fitness is the only thing that might hold him back. He, like Bastoni, has all the tools to be one of the best defenders in world football. Um, nine, I've gone with Nea Vegard. And I, I could be talked out of that one, but I, I, I'm high on Agard. I, I do think he, he's a really good defender. And number 10, I've gone for Kyle Tomori. I just think he's excellent. I think he's really, really good for Milan. I, I I think Chelsea would be so much better off if they still had Gwehi, him, and Caldwell as a back three. If they had him and Gwehi as a pairing with Caldwell as the left back and flexing into a three like they did last night, I think they'd be better off. Um, nobody is Chile because... He doesn't play enough. He's been injured all season. So he's he's fallen out. He would have been ninth or 10th based on his time at Monaco. Uh, no Levi Caldwell in either list because, well, he's playing left back and he just hasn't proven enough yet. Um, no Thiago Silva because I actually watch football and I see the amount of mistakes he makes and how much the team have to compensate for having him there. Uh, so, yeah, there's my top 10. Van Dijk, Kim, Diaz, Botman, Schrinier, Bastoni, Alaba, Schlotterbeck, Agard, and Tamori. Um, all time. So, again, have to have seen 25 or more games, 1970 and onwards, and no longer playing is the other key part of this. Now... I might have messed that up on the goalkeeper. I don't think I did. I think I went with... Let me see. I'm pretty certain I've I've held consistent to that. If I didn't, then I apologize, but I certainly meant to. Uh, I don't think there's any modern fullbacks that I would have put in. Uh, no, goalkeepers, I definitely went with retired fullbacks. I could find this list now, it'd be a great thing. This is this is fantastic. Um I don't know where my fullback lists are. But I'm pretty certain I didn't include current players in those lists. I know I didn't for goalkeeper or right side centre back. So all time. Number one is Franco Baresi. For a guy who was 5'9", to be that great defensively and play for as long as he did, 1977, he makes his debut. 
for AC Milan. He retires in 1997. Played for Italy for four, for 12 years, won 81 caps. Was late getting his Italian debut based on how good he'd already been for for Milan. Um, consistent brilliance. Rarely injured. Season after season, 30, 40, 50 games. 719 appearances for Milan. Flawless defensively. Even the fact he was five foot nine, he made up for it in the air by just pure timing. He'd drop a step to give himself that extra step going forward. He'd just nudge a forward player in the back to knock them off. He, just little subtle things that you probably wouldn't get away with today. He was just the master of them. 1v1, he was unbeatable. He had great pace. He was very good on the ball. Perfect timing on tackles. Phenomenal reading of the game. Organiser, leader. Just incredible. Absolutely incredible. Um, Six league titles, three Champions Leagues. Two European Super Cups. Won the World Cup with uh, Italy in 82. Didn't play a big role. Uh, Ballon d'Or runner-up in 89. Had his jersey retired by Milan. Just phenomenal. Franco Baresi was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, Number two, I've gone Alessandro Nesta. I think if you were to go into a lab and design the perfect centre-back, you'd either come out with Van Dijk or him. That's kind of where I'd fall. Pace, timing, reading of the game, strength, 1v1, dominant in the air. The only striker that ever really gave him trouble was the real Ronaldo. He gave everybody trouble. Everybody else just went in his pocket. Incredible for Lazio. Phenomenal for Milan. And even when he went to Montreal Impact at 36, he was still really, really good. Um, A great career for Italy, winning 78 caps. Won Serie A and two Coppa Italias, as well as the Cup Winners Cup with Lazio. Won two league titles and two Champions Leagues with Milan. Won the World Cup. Had injury problems in that World Cup. A back problem, but was in the squad, won the World Cup. Uh, Serie A Defender of the Year four times, it should have been more. UEFA Team of the Year four times, again, it should have been more. Named in the FIFA 100. He's a Hall of Fame player for Milan. He's a Hall of Fame player for his national team. And he's the greatest defender that Lazio ever had by a country mile. So, undeniably, a near-perfect defender. Didn't have Van Dyke's passing. Wasn't quite as big as Van Dyke. But he was Van Dyke at everything else. He might have been a better 1v1 defender than Virgil. And Virgil's incredible 1v1. But Nesta was just so, so good. And he was like, he was a good passer. He was also very good at carrying the ball out of defense, which was something he'd modeled off what Baresi used to do. Genuinely an outrageously good defender. Uh, Number three, we're going to go Bobby Moore. The greatest English defender of all time. World Cup winning captain. 
again, just read the game at an incredible level. Now, again, most of his career is pre-1970. But I saw quite a bit. I've seen I've seen quite a bit of his later West Ham and Fulham time. And it's just phenomenal how good he was. Like, similar to McGrath, didn't really need to move or didn't appear to be moving, but just always happened to be in the right place. And that wasn't by fluke. It was by design. Always ahead of everybody else in terms of how he read the game, anticipation, timing, rarely beaten 1v1. Doesn't have the track record of medals because he was at West Ham. So one FA Cup, one European Cup Winners' Cup, and obviously he did win the World Cup with England, uh, was Ballon d'Or runner-up in 1970, was Football Writers Footballer of the Year in 1964, deserved a bigger stage than West Ham, and that's not to be disrespectful to West Ham, but if he'd been, say, part of Busby's United team, or Shankly's Liverpool team, he would be held in even higher regard than he is right now. Because he would have had a ton more medals. But you see, even without the club accolades, how regarded he is. Like, the Brazilians talk of him in awe with this, this odd sense of what is this defender? One of the few guys that could really put Pele in his pocket and just completely take him out of the game. Unfortunately, he passed away far too young. Only 51 when he passed, but Bobby Moore was, was incredible. So he's number three. Number four is Daniel, Daniel Passarella. Um, a 5'8 centre back who was the toughest guy maybe to ever play the game, a great leader, a brilliant defender, like quick across the ground, incredibly powerful in the challenge, could play left back, could play as a sweeper, could step into midfield and play there. Loved to bomb forward, absolutely adored. If the ball was built, if, if, if River Plate were building down the right, he was bombing forward from the left and just getting himself in the box. Scored a lot of goals for a defender, 143 at club level and 22 and 70 caps for Argentina. Won two World Cups with Argentina, though didn't play in 86, but was part of the squad. Had a falling out with Maradona, or he blamed it on a falling out with Maradona and the coach, but he'd been ill, lost his place. And unfortunately for him, just didn't get back in. And they were right not to bring him back in because they were winning. So why would you bring him back in? Why would you change a winning team as great as he was? Played for Sarmiento, played for River Plate for nine years. Went to Fiorentina, had a really good four-year run there in the 80s. Played for Inter for two years and then retired with River Plate. One, one, two... Three, four, five, six, seven league titles with River, Copa Libertadores runner up, two World Cups, Argentine Football of the Year in 76, named in the FIFA 100, 
and the accolades don't even do him justice. If he came around now, like, the funny thing is, Lissandra Martinez, the way he's talked about, if he was half as good as he actually is, he'd be Daniel Passarella. <laughs> no, that's not right. If he was twice as good as the way people talk about him now, and, and people overhype him to the moon, Daniel Passarella was like that level plus that again. That's how good he actually was. If he came through now, he'd be a left back or a holding midfielder, but he people would be awed by how good he was defensively. Um, as a coach, he had some issues. He insisted on players cutting their hair, which did not go well. Uh, meant that Fernando Redondo, the best defensive midfielder in the world, didn't play much under him. But he did win. Like He won three league titles with River Plate as coach. He won a Mexican league title with Monterey. Olympic silver, silver medal, FIFA Confederations Club runner-up. He was a runner-up quite a bit, but he was good at club level. Um, he was president of, Real, of, of River Plate for a while. I don't know if he No, he doesn't. He doesn't. Uh, he doesn't work for them anymore. But yeah, a genuinely, genuinely great player. Uh, next up, we're going to go Alan Hansen, Scotland and Liverpool. How he only has twenty six caps for Scotland is beyond me. But after Bobby Moore, he's the best British defender of all time. Another one whose reading of the game and ability on the ball were just in, uh, incredible. Could easily have been a midfielder, but would probably be a number six if he played today. Won the Scottish First Division with Partick Thistle, joined Liverpool, eight league titles, four league cups, two FA Cups, three European Cups, and a UEFA Super Cup. And bear in mind, three European Cups didn't get to play in it for the last five, six years of his career because of the, the Heysel ban when his team were the best team in Europe, or or at least one of them, that Milan team was knocking about for a few years. Um, yeah, Alan Hansen. It just has to be for me. Uh, next up then, number, I think it's number five. No, number six. Is that right? Hang on a second. They lost somebody off this list. I have a... Passarello was five. Hansen was six. No, Passarello was sorry. Baresi's one. Nest is two. Moore is three. Passarella is four. Hansen is five. So this is number six. Fernando Hierro, uh, the best Spanish defender of all time. He just... The perfect defender in every way. Had good recovery pace was great on the ball, was tough, was good 1v1, was an organiser, a leader, could play in midfield, did play in midfield, like played a lot in midfield in his career. Had that physical presence that strikers just didn't like, Was could bully them. I love Fernando Hierro. Absolutely loves him. Great, great player. So he's next. Then we're going with Yapstam. Most people remember Yapstam. Phenomenal for PSV, for United, for Lazio, for Milan. 
doesn't always get the respect he deserved, but he was incredible. United don't win that treble without him. He was just so, so good. Eredivisie with PSV, three league titles with United, Champions League with United, Coppa Italia with Lazio, was bought by Lazio to replace Nesta and then bought by Milan to partner Nesta. And those two together for that what two-year run, yeah, just incredible. Even though Stam at that point was like 33-34. Uh, a shame that he didn't get his big move earlier in his career. Like he was 26 when he joined United and 29 when he left. If he joined United at like 21, 22, but like with Van Dyke, didn't come on the scene until that bit later, like as a major player. Uh, he was at Swole, Cambor, and Willem Tway. Um, whereas, you know, Van Dyke was at Willem Tway, Groningen, and then Celtic. And again, with Van Dyke, he joins Liverpool at 27. Doesn't get his move to Southampton until 24. No, I'm wrong. He was, yeah, he was 27. Yeah, yeah. No, he was 26 because he turned 27 then that summer he was at Liverpool. So yeah, he was 26 when he joined Liverpool the same way Stan was 26 when he joined United. And it, again, it's something that people sort of ding them for is they don't have that longevity, but these were phenomenal. Stan was phenomenal. The Premier League hasn't seen many better. Van Dijk, McGrath, and after that, I'm, I'm probably stopping in terms of Premier League. Uh, next up then, number eight on this list, I'm going for Tony Adams. Arsenal's best ever defender. A phenomenal player. Like, he wasn't given enough credit as a player for how good he was on the ball. People would compare the likes of John Terry to him. And like defensively, yeah, similar style, blood and thunder a little bit, dominant in the air, brave, would throw himself in front of things. But Tony Adams was great in the ball. Having come through at Arsenal and played a lot with David O'Leary, he'd modelled a lot of his game on O'Leary, who was a ball-playing centre-back. And Adams was, was just so, so good in the ball, so comfortable stepping out. 672 games for Arsenal, 49 goals. Great for England, like genuinely great for England. 66 caps, should have won a lot more, never quite understood what was going on. He didn't win more. You look at the um, the trophies, he won four league titles for Arsenal, three FA Cups, two League Cups, and a European Cup Winners' Cup. Arsenal Player of the Year three times, PFA Young Player of the Year once, PFA team of the season four times. It should have been six or seven. Like in the in the early days of the Premier League, McGrath and, and Adams were the two best centre-backs around. Pallister would have been number three. Then even into the late 90s, like it was, he was still one of the very, very elite defenders in the league. Desai came in, Stam arrived. Saul Campbell... Uh, emerged and and developed into a truly great defender as well. But Adams was was right in the mix. Up until probably, even at that, like even 2000, 2001, he was very good. 
Tony Adams was just great. He just he was genuinely just great. Uh, number nine, Oscar Ruggieri, another Argentine. Uh, Boca Juniors, River Plate, Lagrones, a season with Real Madrid, Vela Sarsfield, and he bounced about a bit, but part of the World Cup winning team in 86 and the runner-up team in 90. Won two Copa Americas, won a league title with Boca, won a league title with River, won a league title with Real. Only had that one year at Real, and I've never understood why. My assumption is he just didn't settle in Spain, had the the season with Lagrones, and then went to Real, and then he was off back to Argentina. He did come back to Europe to play for Ancona for a short time, but again, he went straight back to, well, it was to Mexico this time, but I just don't think he settled in Europe. But that season, you go back and find footage of, of games for Real Madrid in 89-90, and it's him and Manolo Sanchez as the centre-backs, and Hierro playing as a holding midfielder, and sometimes just dropping in between them. And Real were brilliant. Real walked the league that year. He was so, so good. Great 1v1 defender. He was the type of defender that you could afford to have someone out of position knowing he's going to cover. The right back is out of position. He's coming all the way across to cover. Super smart. Very much a team defender, but brilliant 1v1. Great cover defender as well. Just a genuine great. A genuine great of the game. Um, Like, was La Liga foreign player of the year in 89? And for some reason, just decided to head on back to Argentina. So strange. Um, South American Football of the Year in 91. Also Football of the Year in Argentina in 91. Brilliant at the 1990 World Cup. Probably even better at the 90 World Cup than he had been in 86 when he was phenomenal. Um, Imagine if Martin Keown had more pace. That's the type of defender. You know, kind of 1v1. That... That rash type of defender. I don't. I don't mean rash as in jumping in. I mean as in he just engulfed people and was all over them and never gave them an inch. Didn't let them breathe. That kind. But he was also very good in the ball. Um, number ten then is Saul Campbell. I think historically he's quite underrated. Brilliant for Spurs. Brilliant for Arsenal. He was even good for Portsmouth when he went there. Obviously, he's a bit of a twat. And he's made some very strange statements over the years. And he's not a very good manager. And I, I still hold it against him what he did to Macclesfield. Um, he was, he's part of the reason Macclesfield went out of business for his insistence on being paid out of a contract that he didn't need the money from. And I know he was entitled to that money, but still. Um, yeah. The club owed him 180 grand. Like this guy was making 100 grand a week 10 years, 20 years earlier. When he joined Arsenal, he joined on about 100 grand a week. And he joined Arsenal in 01. And that. That was. What year was that? 2019. He backed the bid to wind up the club and send them out of business, which obviously they did go out of business a year later. So I, I do hold that against him, but as a defender, he was, he was brilliant. 
quick, strong, great in the air, great 1v1, good on the ball. Not not elite on the ball, but good on the ball. Was so important to Arsenal when he went there. Him going from Spurs to Arsenal was one of the biggest shock transfers in the history of the league. He'd been so, so good for Spurs and was developing in, was genuinely developing into one of the best in the world. I think he was 27 when he made the move, 26, about to turn 27. And what was disappointing was that Spurs also had Ledley King. And it looked like they were going to have King and Campbell as a pairing for the long haul. They'd played. 15 or so games together in that last season that Campbell played there. And it really did look like this is, this is the future of Spurs and of England. This is going to be the pairing. Ledley's 2021, 20, Saul's 26, person 27. This pairing played, th- played together for England for five or six years. Uh, in the end, I don't know that they ever played together for England. I'm sure they did play some games, but Ledley only won 21 caps because of his injuries. And they didn't play together for Spurs after that because Campbell left. But when he went to Arsenal, he went to a different level. In in credit to him, he went to a different level. Whether it was next to Keown, even Adams, because Adams was there that last year or so. But whether it was next to him or Keown or Colo Turi, so, uh, Saul Campbell was just phenomenal. So he's number 10. Uh, my favourite five then... Um, Of course, I've lost it, because that's what I do. Ah, Franco Brazy, Alessandro Nesta, Alan Hansen, Fernando Hierro, and one who didn't make the list was Thomas Helmer. And he's number number five on my preferred list, my favourite list. Brilliant for Dortmund, incredible for, for, for Bayern, but it was the national team where... I really enjoyed watching him. That that role he played in the 96 Euros, the left side centre-back in the three with Samer as the sweeper and Marcus Babel as the right side centre-back gave them the flexibility to play with that three. Zammer could go forward. They could drop into a four with Babel and Helmer as the four, as the, the two, two centre-backs in the four. Ziga and Stefan Reuter as the actual fullbacks. Or Ziga could push on as a left winger. Helmer could go to left back very, very comfortably. Um, he was part of one of the weirder transfers you'll ever see, where he was at Dortmund. He wanted to go to Bayern. Bayern wanted to buy him. Dortmund didn't want to sell him to Bayern. So he joined Leon. And then Byron bought him directly from Leon three months later, and he never kicked a ball for Leon. He was just set up to get around Torpent, um, which now there'd be absolute murder if that happened. Um, so yeah, he's number five on my list. A uh, little bit of news: Pat Jennings is to attend a statue unveiling in. Newry on Wednesday, despite the fact he was unwell on Monday. It's great news that he is he was taken ill while attending Tottenham's game against Chelsea. He's taken to the hospital, test came back clear, and he was later discharged. That's all great news that he is uh 
Sorry, it's it's great news that he's going to be at this unveiling. Uh, he's a proud Newry. He's not a citizen of Newry because he doesn't live there anymore, but he's a, a child of Newry. So great to see him going back to get his statue unveiled. It's about time they put a statue up for him. It's also a little bit much that he they waited until 2022 to make him a CBE for his contributions to football and charity. He became an MBE in 1976 and took them that long to up him to the next level. He should be Sir Pat Jennings. He's, he's the greatest goalkeeper that, even though I count him as Irish because, well, he is, he's the greatest goalkeeper that the United Kingdom's ever produced. Better than Banks, better than Shilton, better than Clements. Incredible. On to the gossip. Manchester United and Newcastle are both monitoring Rayan Cherky, who's at a contract in 2025. Super talented. Would fit really well with Newcastle. Wouldn't fit as well with United. He doesn't fit what they're how they're playing. But you could alter the team to fit him, obviously. Bruno Fernandes is emerging as a potential target for Saudi Pro League clubs in January. That has got to be his agent. And he's a Mendes client, I think. Because he's 29, he's captain of Manchester United. He's either looking for a new contract or he's looking to leave United. You couldn't really blame him if he's looking to to get out because they've been so, so poor. And there's no real signs of things improving hugely. Uh, Liverpool and Newcastle have Calvin Phillips on their January transfer shortlist. I think Liverpool would do it if it was alone. I don't think they'd buy him. Manchester City have a long-standing interest in Florian Wirtz and had the 20-year-old watched as his Bayer Leverkusen side beat Hoffenheim on Saturday. Um, it's 90minute.com, so you wouldn't believe it, but he... Him as this successor to KDB, I suppose, is is something that's very possible. David Moyes is not in danger of the sack, despite having just won just one of the past seven Premier League games. But he's unlikely to be offered an extension to his contract, which expires next summer. I think they should have moved him on this past summer. He'd won his European trophy. He'd won his trophy. Get him out the door get someone else in and go in a different direction. But they've started the season pretty well. So, like, you know, the decision to keep them has been justified. They are in a poor run at the moment, though. Juventus are confident they will agree a long-term deal with Adrian Rabio, who signed a one-year contract extension this past summer. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Borussia, oh, sorry, Juventus and Everton are both monitoring Borussia Mönchengladbach's 17-year-old Swiss forward, Winsley Batelli. Don't know who that is. Don't know who that is. Never seen him play. Um, Liverpool defender Ibrahima Kanate has admitted he dreamed about playing for Paris Saint-Germain, but a move to the League One champions is not one of his objectives. It's a nothing story. Former Chelsea boss Frank Lampard says the club's board denied him the chance to sign Jude Bellingham when he was at Birmingham. Like This is just so silly. It's just so silly. Frank is very much trying to rewrite history. Lampard was given everything he asked for when he was Chelsea manager and any stories to the alternative are nonsense. Manchester City want to sign 
France under-21 defender Quinton Merlin from Nantes in January. Fair enough. Oxford boss Liam Manning is close to becoming the new Bristol City manager. Bristol City is a big club. And I'd very much like to see them in the Premier League. Now, Liam Manning is a talented manager who did pretty well at Lommel, did pretty well at MK Dons, and then things went badly. And when they went badly, he couldn't fix them. He took over at Oxford in March. He's only been there 29 games. He has done well there. It's a sizable enough jump. It's a sizable enough jump to Bristol. Like Oxford are in League One, Bristol obviously championship level team. Bristol's a big club with a lot of expectation because they should be a Premier League club. Um, He was a great youth coach and he played a huge role in the development of Declan Rice. He's someone that is has been on the the radar for a while now as one of the up-and-coming coaches to keep an eye on. So hopefully, hopefully if he takes the Bristol job, he does well. Because I'd really like to see Bristol in the Premier League. I think it would be genuinely great to see Bristol City in the Premier League. Uh, And that's it. That's all we have for today. So I will see you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Network.